Hello, and welcome to the men's Bible study at Park City's Presbyterian Church. My name is Paul, and one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you've joined us for this study through the miracles of Jesus Christ. We're calling our study Signs and Wonders, Finding Hope and the Miracles of Jesus. And you, if you were with us last week, you saw how each one of these miracles is a sign to point us to Jesus, His person and His work. Today, we're looking at the miracle where Jesus healed a man from a legion of demons. And in this miracle, we're going to see that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. So I invite you now to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. I'll begin reading in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there they met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told in the city and the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is God's word for us today. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would now draw near to us as your people, as your sons. We thank you for sending us your son, Jesus Christ, so that we who were once orphaned might become your sons in his name. We pray now as men that you would help us to draw near to you, and that in that you would draw near to us, that you would work in and through your holy word, and as men gathered together in community, that you would show us what it means to truly believe and see that you, Jesus Christ, our Son of the Most High God. May your sonship be everything to our sonship today. And may we identify with you, Jesus, and see you as our authority, as the one who's supreme and the one who is truly the Son of God. 
Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, and I encourage you, if you haven't watched last week or any of the previous lessons, go to our website, pcpc.org, and you'll find all of the past lessons through the last four miracles of Jesus. But if you were with us last week and were part of that discussion, we looked at Jesus calming the storm. And we define miracle this way. It's actually Jared Wilson's definition from The Wonderworking God. He defines miracle this way, a very simple, but I think helpful definition. He says that a miracle is a supernatural act of God that glorifies Jesus. Last week, we we talked about how the second part of that definition is so important that we see that a miracle is a sign that points to the person and work of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus glorify Jesus. Jesus. Well, today, we're really going to look at the first part of that definition, a supernatural act. And I think one of the big problems for us as we look at the miracles of Jesus, other than the fact that we don't see things quite like this anymore, is that each one of these truly is a supernatural act, an act of God beyond the ordinary natural realm that we're accustomed to. And one of the reasons why I think this is hard for us in particular is that we are 21st century Western Christians. And we live at a time and in an age that is bifurcated. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that we live in a a time and in a culture where there's a huge separation between that which is sacred and that which is secular. That which we see is the things of God and the things around us in the secular world that are very tangible or physical. Another way you might think about that is things that are transcendent versus things that are imminent. Or, to put it as basic as I could, so often our culture divides things into a world of faith and a world of science. And so you and I, living in that culture, even if you are a Christian today, we're tempted to think that the world around us, the tangible physical world, is really all that there is. That that which we can see and touch, that we can physically interact with, that really is the summation of reality. But if we're to believe the Bible, we must believe that there is a supernatural world. There's a spiritual world. The Westminster Divine said that God is spirit. To believe in God is to believe in spirit. To believe that there is a spiritual, supernatural world that we cannot see, we cannot touch, we cannot smell, we cannot use any of our normal senses. And yet, the truth is, you and I interact with it every single day. There's a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he wrote what I think is one of the most important philosophical books of our current day. It's called A Secular Age. Now, before you go and try to look it up on Amazon and buy it, I want to warn you, it's super thick and incredibly dense, but it's so helpful in a way that he's able to really describe what you and I experience 
as Westerners in a secular age. And this is how he talks about this huge divide between the supernatural and the natural world around us. He calls it the imminent frame. And it's the difference between the imminent world and the transcendent world. This is what he says. This imminent frame constitutes a natural order to be contrasted with a supernatural one, an imminent world over against a possible transcendent one. Now, I don't know when you're watching this video, but if it's super early in the morning, that might have been a bit much to swallow. And so let me break down what Charles Taylor is saying and why I think it's so important as we talk about this particular miracle. Taylor basically describes what he calls the imminent frame. In other words, that as 21st century Westerners, everything around us is bound by an imminent frame or that which is just right in front of us, which you can see, which you can taste, which you can touch, which you can feel. And Taylor says that for most of us, this frame is closed. In other words, we go through everyday life assuming that what we can see around us is all that there is, just what is imminent. He says, really, we live in a disenchanted world, a world where the transcendent is no longer believed in, is no longer recognized. And by transcendent, we can imagine God, the spiritual, supernatural world. And you and I have been raised in this kind of culture, so much so that it's hard for us, even as Christians, to believe some of the things we read in the Bible. Now, now you might stop me right there and say, well, well, Paul, I am a Christian, and I believe in God, and I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I even believe in the incarnation, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. All of these classic definitions of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, I might submit to you that today, as 21st century Western Christians who have grown up also in Texas, for many of us, the truth is some of these cultural norms of Christianity have kind of broken into our imminent frame. We're willing to accept those things, but the rest of what we read in the Bible sometimes is hard for us to believe. For example, the story of Jonah and the big fish. We talked about that last week. It's interesting how so many Christians will believe in the resurrection of Jesus and yet have a hard time believing that Jonah was swallowed up by a really big fish. In the same way today as we look at this miracle where Jesus cast out a legion of demons, for, for some reason we might be able to believe that Jesus calmed a storm, but the idea of demons is, is part of a world that you and I don't readily understand or even acknowledge that it exists. A world beyond the imminent frame, a world of transcendence, a spirit world, a reality much further beyond that you and I possibly could imagine, and yet it's a world that exists every single day all around us. And it's a world that the Bible talks about from Genesis 
to Revelation. C.S. Lewis, in a book called The Screwtape Letters, talks about our difficulty with believing in the supernatural world and believing in the supernatural presence of evil, the devil and demons. He says in the prologue to The Screwtape Letters, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. What's Lewis saying? He's saying there is a supernatural world out there, a world where there is good and evil, and evil is made up of the devil, the devils, the demons. And he wrote the screw tape letters as a, as a fictitious way of describing what this world of demons looks like. A conversation between an older demon named Screwtape and a younger demon named Wormwood. Later in the Screwtape letters, this is how he put it. Uncle Screwtape writing to this younger demon who he's trying to teach on how to best tempt you and I as human beings. He says, if any faint suspicion of your existence as a demon begins to arise in his mind, that is the person that the demon possesses. So if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in you, Therefore, he cannot believe in you. All right, so the idea is this. When you think of a demon, what do you imagine? What do you picture? Well, what Lewis is doing, he's saying, look, when you and I think of a demon, we think of this guy with a, a red pitchfork, right? Dressed in red, he's got a pitchfork, and he looks ridiculous. And because that's what you and I think of a demon, and that's absurd, it's like a comic book character, then the actual reality of demons seems so far fetched to us. But today, as we look at this particular miracle, we're going to see that there are such things as demons. In fact, the Bible speaks of demons quite often. These demons are at work among us, and yet their power is limited. Because what we're going to see today is that not only is Jesus, the King and King of Lord of Lords, over the natural world. Not only does he have authority over nature, as we saw last week in the calming of the storm, but today what we're going to see is Jesus also has authority as the Son of God over the supernatural world, over angels and demons and principalities and powers. And one day when he comes again, he will come in victory to defeat Satan and his demons and the evil that you and I experience every single day. He will defeat it once and for all. So the first thing I want us to see today, I want you to see that Jesus has the authority of the Son. He is authoritative. And we see this in the Gospel of Luke. Now what you need to know is that in the Gospel of Luke, this miracle casting out of the demoniac occurs right after Jesus calming the storm. In the Gospel of Luke, we're meant to see these two miracles side by side. Again, so that we would see that Jesus has authority. Not only the natural world that we can see, that imminent world, 
So we see that Jesus also has authority over the supernatural world, over the transcendent. And so Luke chapter 8, verse 26, we're told that Jesus and the disciples sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, remember what they've just experienced. They've seen Jesus calm a storm by the word of his power. And now they're sailing to a country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. Now, what you need to know about this area, this region, is that it was a Gentile region. In other words, it was a region made up of predominantly non-Jews. One of our clues to know that's true is because of the presence of pigs, considered an unclean animal. And yet in this story, pigs are going to make a very important place in this particular miracle. So here these disciples are, they've sailed across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side, a Gentile region. In verse 27, we're told that Jesus stepped out on land and there he was met by a man from the city who had demons. Now, what is a demon? I think it's probably important for us to take a pause very quickly and just talk about what a demon is according to the Bible. No, it is not someone dressed in red with horns and a pitchfork, but a demon is a servant, a minion of Satan himself. And what you might not realize is that demons are actually mentioned in 19 of the 27 books of the New Testament. In the Gospels, we see often that Jesus is casting out demons. Our miracle today is not the only instance of this occurring. The Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of demons. And he was an angel who rebelled against God. And when he rebelled, other angels rebelled along with him and became Satan and these demons. These demons do not have as much authority as sometimes the kind of idea that we might think they do, particularly in this kind of comic book world that you and I are sometimes accustomed to. They have far less, especially when they come up against the person of Jesus. But what you do need to know is that in the Bible, we see that demons are a part of Satan's agenda. Everything that Satan wants to do, he is commanding his demons to carry out. And the reason for this is they are not like God. They are not omnipotent, they are not omniscient, and they are not omnipresent. These demons do the bidding of Satan because they are roaming around, not able to be everywhere like God is. They do his work. And what is their work? to thwart the kingdom of God, to go against the truth of the gospel, to try to prevent Jesus Christ from ascending the throne of each and every human heart. And so they tempt us. They oppress us. And here we see that they've even possessed a man. This man is from the city and he had demons and we're told, For a long time he'd worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. I want you to kind of get this scene in your mind. 
This was a naked man running up to Jesus. Now that on its own would be off-putting. But this is a naked man who is homeless, who's been living in a graveyard. And I think that's significant. Again, a graveyard, a place where there are tombs, will be a place where demons roam about. So this man's been living in a graveyard, completely naked, out of his mind. And he runs up to Jesus. He is possessed by a demon. Now, again, you and I draw our imagination of what a demon is from pop culture, so much so that it even causes, just like Lewis says, to not believe that it's true. This is only the kind of thing you see in movies like The Exorcist. But the Bible makes it clear that demon possession is true. And the question is, what is demon possession really like? And as Christians, can we be possessed by a demon? One of the best answers I've ever seen to this question is written by R.C. Sproul, late pastor and theologian. This is what he had to say. It's in a book called Unseen Realities. Sproul says, in the Bible, we see demons possessing people and oppressing people. And there's a difference. Causing bodily harm, property damage, and all kinds of things. The Christian is always faced with this question. Can I be demon-possessed? As we're talking about demons today, it's important that you understand the answer to this question. If you are a Christian, can you be demon-possessed? Sproul says, I don't believe so. I believe that people can be demon-possessed, but I don't think it's possible for the Christian. In other words, for to believe the Bible is true, We must recognize that it is possible for people to be possessed by a demon. Now, again, in the Western world where we see this huge difference between the imminent and the transcendent world, this seems hard to believe. But if you travel to other countries far beyond this Western world that you and I know so well, the idea that people could be possessed by a demon is not so far-fetched. And perhaps it's more around us than you and I realize. So Sproul says, yeah, I believe that people can be possessed by demons, but it's not possible for a Christian. Why? Well, he goes on. He says, because, the God, because God the Holy Spirit resides in the regenerate person. The Holy Spirit resides in all those who are Christians He goes on to put it this way, and I think this is so important. This is what he says. He says, so no demon can hold us hostage to the power of Satan. If you are in Christ today, you need to know that he has authority, and we're about to see this authority in the Gospel of Luke. He has authority. Demons can oppress us as Christians They can harass us, they can tempt us, they can attack us, and so on. But thanks be to God, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, why can we take comfort that if you are a Christian, if you have professed faith in death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, why can we know that while demons might oppress us, they cannot possess us? Why? Because Jesus has complete authority over them. 
And this is what we see here in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has authority not only over the natural world around us, but over the supernatural world as well. Verse 28, when this man who's possessed by these demons sees Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, there's a couple things I want you to notice here, and it's pretty incredible. The first thing I want you to notice is that this man, possessed by the demons, is speaking to Jesus directly. It's not the man who's speaking, but I think it's the demons speaking for him. The reason why I know this is because of how they address Jesus. Notice what they call him. They say, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Now, they're saying this for a couple reasons. One, because they know who he is. Do you see that? These demons know who Jesus is. Last week, as we looked at the storm and Jesus calming the storm, it caused the disciples to ask a question. And the question they asked is, who is this man? Gospel of Luke puts it this way. Again, it's just a few verses before the passage we're studying today. Luke 8, 25, Jesus said to them, where is your faith? And they said, we're afraid. And they marveled and they said to one another, who is this that he commands even the winds and water that they obey him? The disciples have just asked, who is this? And here in this passage, the demons answer the question. This is Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, in ancient times, it was believed that when you called someone's name like that, it was as if you were picking a fight and bowing up and saying, I know who you are. I can take you. But pretty quickly, we see that I'm not so sure these demons were so confident. See, they call Jesus son of the most high God. And then notice what he says, this legion of demons. I beg you. Do not torment me. These demons not only know who Jesus is as the Son of the Most High God, but they recognize his authority. They know that they are powerless against Jesus. They're begging him, don't torment us. Leave us alone. What do you have to do with me? These demons want no part of the power that Jesus has over them. They recognize his absolute authority. James recognizes this when he wrote this, James 2 verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know who Jesus is. They recognize his authority their problem is they rebel against him. The question for you and I this morning, or this evening, or whenever you're watching this, the question you, that you and I must ask is not just do you believe in Jesus and his authority, but have you bowed to his authority? 
Have you pledged your allegiance to his kingdom and his kingdom alone? And have you trusted in his death and his resurrection as the only authority that can save you from your sins? The first thing we see here is Jesus has authority as the Son. The second thing I want you to see, I want you to see the supremacy of the Son. Luke 8, verse 29. Gospel of Luke continues, verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. What you to see is that this demon had possessed this man in such a way that it made this man violent. It had driven him to uncontrollable fits. So Jesus comes up to this man, doing what no other person had been able to do in verse 30. Jesus asks him, what is his name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. A Roman legion in those days was 5,600 troops. So I don't know how many demons possessed this man, but if he's calling himself legion, we know that it's a lot, perhaps as many as five to 6,000 demons. This man had been completely overcome with evil. And you and I are confronted with evil every single day. We see this evil all around us. Perhaps now we're wondering, is evil winning? We see the division, the divisiveness, the brokenness in our own country, and we begin to wonder, will evil win the day? This miracle is a reminder that evil will never win that we know that the Bible tells us that one day Satan and all his minions will be defeated once and for all because Jesus is supreme. He reigns supreme over heaven and earth, over all that we can see and all that is unseen. And so Jesus asks him his name. He says his name is Legion. And then notice what the demon says next. The demon says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there, and they begged them to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. These demons, once again, are begging Jesus. Because not only they recognize his authority, they recognize his supremacy as well. They beg Jesus not to cast them into the abyss, which we see talked about in the book of Revelation, the final resting place of Satan and his demons, hell itself. They're saying, don't cast us into hell, Jesus. We beg you, put us in these pigs instead. And notice what it says. Jesus gave them permission. Jesus reigns supreme over even the demons. They cannot hold a candle to his power, his authority, and his majesty, King of kings and Lord of lords. So we're told, verse 33, the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake 
and drowned. It's an amazing display, the majesty, the kingship, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians talks about Jesus' supremacy by talking about him being preeminent. This is what Paul says in the book of Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Again, what we cannot see. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven, in the transcendent world, and on earth, the imminent world, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the force burned from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is supreme over all things, whether thrones or dominions, things of visible or invisible, eminent or transcendent, things in the natural world or the supernatural world. Jesus reigns supreme over all things. The last thing that I think this miracle shows us, just like the last one, that we see that Jesus as the Son of God is divine. I want us to see the divinity of the Son. Luke 8, verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. There's a few things I want you to see here. It's a pretty amazing thing to think about. These people, these herdsmen, watched what had happened. And not was it an incredible sight to behold, but they'd been around this man. The people had known this man roaming around the countryside completely naked and completely crazy. Now, did they know he was possessed by demons? It seems like they did. What we do know is that they were afraid of him. And yet now we see that they're afraid of Jesus. Do you see that? Verse 35, we're told that they see this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he's now clothed. He's in his right mind. This man who was once naked has now been clothed, healed by Jesus. This man who was once violently thrashing about is now sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. And it's for that reason that the people are afraid. Why? Because now they're seeing Jesus for who he is. The sign of this miracle is now showing them, pointing them the glory of Jesus Christ, and they're filled with fear. Just as the disciples were afraid of the storm, and when it was calm, suddenly they had fear and awe of Jesus, these people who were afraid of this man possessed by the demoniac are now afraid by the healer 
They're afraid of Jesus. Why? Because only God can do that. They're seeing the divinity of the Son. Verse 36, those who had seen it had told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. In verse 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart for them, for they were seized with great fear. These people were so afraid of Jesus because of what he had just done that they told Jesus to leave. They couldn't believe it. They saw Jesus do this display of something that only God could do. And these Gentiles asked Jesus to leave. But that's not what this demon-possessed man did. No, now that he had been healed by Jesus, he didn't ask Jesus to leave. He asked if he could stay. It's a stark contrast of what happens with human beings when we're confronted with the absolute authority, supremacy, and divinity of Jesus as the Son of God. When you see Jesus for who he truly is as God's Son, one of two things happen. Either you will bow down before him and want to fall at his feet, or you will want no part of his lordship and authority in your life, and you will beg him to leave. What I want you to see this morning, brothers, is if the latter describes you today. If you find yourself constantly bucking the authority and supremacy of Jesus in your life, then that means you are acting just like the demons. And I can't speculate of what role the demons might play in your life directly, but what I can say is this. James would say you're just like the demons. If you acknowledge God's existence, you acknowledge Jesus for who he is and yet refuse to bow down and obey and follow him as your king, your Lord and your savior, then you're just like the demons, just like this people, begging him to leave. And yet this demon-possessed man, upon being healed once and for all by Jesus, wanted nothing more than to sit at his feet. When we allow Jesus to have reign and rule over our hearts, to allow his death and resurrection to be our salvation, then as those moments, then where else would we go? Where else would we want to go than to sit at the fit, feet of Jesus Christ and be with him? Brothers, does that describe you today? Do you want to sit at the fit, feet of Jesus Christ? This man, it's what he wanted we see this, verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. Why? Why would Jesus send the man away? Verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus didn't want this man just to keep the good news to himself, but he wanted this man to go and tell his story of rescue, to share with the, the whole countryside what God had done with him. What I want you to see in this passage is an amazing detail that you may miss. I want you to look again. 
Verse 39, Jesus tells this man, declare how much God had done for you. And notice, Luke tells us that this man went away, going through the whole city, how much Jesus had done for him. God and Jesus are used interchangeably. This man recognized Jesus to be the Son of God. He saw what the demons saw, that this was the Son of the Most High God. The difference is he wanted to fall down at Jesus' feet. Is that you today? See, you and I, we're in a war, a battle that's being fought in a supernatural world that is beyond what we can see. And we need a warrior, not just to fight the battles that we can see around us, but we need a warrior who will fight every battle, the battle even of the world that is not seen, the supernatural world where Satan and his army of demons is warring against our souls. The Bible says he's prowling around like a lion seeking to devour you and me. And what we see in this miracle today is that Jesus has won the war. He's fighting our battles in our midst and he has authority and reigns supreme over the devil and over all of his demons. And so we, along with the Apostle Paul, take heart with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand for him. This today, we are given the opportunity to take up the whole armor of God and shutting this miracle, seeing what Jesus has done on our behalf. Put on his armor and recognize he alone is the son of God, the son of the most high, the one who is supreme, the one who is one, the one who is victorious over Satan and the demons. Martin Luther, where we're going to end, wrote this in A Mighty Fortress. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what word is that? It's the word, capital W, Jesus Christ. The one who cast out legion from this man. The one who died and rose again for you. The one who is coming again to defeat Satan and his minions once and for all. Whatever evil you face today, Whatever evil that exists in a supernatural world that we cannot see, know this. Jesus reigns supreme and his victory is ours through his death and resurrection. May we see him 
as our King and as our authority and as the Son of God, the Son of the one who is most high. Let's pray. Father, we ask, help us to see how this man saw your Son. Not only how the demons saw him as the Son of God, but help us to see as this man saw the Son of God who has come to heal us and free us from every affliction. So I pray that you'd give us the eyes to see and faith to believe in the world that is all around us, this true reality of not only what is natural, but is supernatural as well. And help us to see Jesus Christ as the one who has authority over the natural world and over the supernatural world, the one who is preeminent over all things. May we worship him as our Lord, as our Savior, and as our King today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.